Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. My name is Bob, your host, and as always, I'm hanging out talking sports with my older brother, Chris. Chris, what's going on? Not much. I am up to 20 baseball stadiums, knocked off three more this last week. And the third That's one, cool. yeah, Miller Park came with a bonus. I got to see the Goo Goo Dolls play, one of my favorite bands, for the eighth time. They played a full set list, too, 16 songs, played for a little over an hour or so. It was pretty sweet. I knocked off the White Sox, the Brewers, and the Twins. And the Twins was also fun because it was the first time I got to see the Cleveland Indians play on the road. And so I wore my Indians jersey and high-fived all the Indians fans I saw. So that was pretty fun. A couple guys even recognized my Akroneros hat I had on. So it was a, it was a fun time. So I'm up to 20. I am two-thirds of the way there. Just got a handful more. And gonna try to knock off a few more next year. That's cool. Um, it's cool to see that you're you're finally getting that done and and, and fulfilling with that thing that you wanted to do and see all those stadiums. That's really cool. I'm glad you had a good trip. Hey man, you were there for a couple of them though. We went out to California last year, the Giants yeah. and the A's. So that was fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say I've been to maybe five or six MLB stadiums. I'd like to get to see more, but. Uh, you have to make an effort to see them all like you're doing, and, and that's really cool. Yeah, certainly. And for anyone who's considering it, I would highly recommend it because you could do so much more than just see the stadiums. Like for the California trip, I did a whole West Coast drive, and it, it takes you to a lot of sites. I mean, there are a lot of cool vacations you can plan around knocking off three or four stadiums at a time. So it is very fun and very worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah, the- it is fun. the The trip I took with you was really fun. So, but we are not talking about baseball today. We are getting ready for football. Uh, if you listen to our last week's podcast, uh, the dust has settled. We've made up from that debate. Apologies if um, we got a little out of hand at times. But if you're interested in listening to Chris and I have a more heated debate about some football, listen to last week's podcast, Big Ten versus SEC. It's still relevant. And it'll be relevant for years to come, probably. The gloves uh, so came off out. last week, man. The gloves came off. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, so a lot of our content for the next month is going to be football preview. Before we get into that, we're kind of in a little dead zone here with preseason football with uh, in the NFL and with training camps, fall camps going on in, in college football. So we wanted to uh, just kind of do a little long form episode today, ask some big questions about uh, NCAA football. If you have listened to a lot of our podcasts, we did an episode a few months back called State of the Leagues, where we asked some big questions about uh, our three favorite professional sports leagues. We're going to do the same one. So this is State of the Leagues episode two, this time all about NCAA college football. Um, so yeah, just uh, a little bit different. We're not going to talk about things in the news or, or do some previews, but uh, we're going to talk about some relevant topics and and, and see where that goes. I'd uh, love to get some feedback from you guys uh, if if you disagree with what we're saying or ha- have better ideas. So I think the first question we were going to talk about was, uh, should kids allow, be allowed to transfer uh, out of their national letter of intent if a coach especially a position positional coach leaves the school uh, days after signing that letter of intent. Um, you see it every year. Uh, 
a kid commits, signs that national letter of intent uh, during the recruiting season, during national signing day. Uh, and then days later, the the position coach or the, the coach that was recruiting him exclusively, who's, who promised him that he was staying, is now cashing in on a big-time NFL job and is leaving the school. And you see the kid, you know, he'll tweet out how disappointed he was. Uh, this played out famously and um, historically with Rokron Smith, uh, the recruit from Georgia who did not sign his national ever intent with UCLA. Instead, he signed a grant and aid scholarship with UCLA, which did not then bind him to attend to that school. His position coach then took a job with the Atlanta Falcons. He fell back to option two UGA, and now he's a bulldog and signed a grant and aid scholarship with them and is now part of their recruiting class. So uh, changes might be brewing, but Chris, uh, I've talked a lot. What do you think about uh, coaches being able to have more mobility, whereas an 18-year-old has to stick with his school? Well, I don't like it. It's a, it's a sticky situation. Uh, this situation also played out with Ohio State in 2015. Uh, Stan Drayton, the Ohio State running backs coach, uh, co- uh, recruited Mike Weber very hard and then left to take a job with the NFL Chicago Bears. And Mike Weber tweeted out some tweets about him being hurt by the coach's decision and whatnot. So this happened recently to the Ohio State Buckeyes as well. It's obviously a very cutthroat business, the business of recruiting. These coaches will do almost anything to get these guys to come to their school. It's yeah. very competitive, very diehard. If you don't believe that, you're either not watching college football or just living in ignorance because these guys want the best players and they will do almost anything to get the best players. It's it's very unfortunate to see the coach leave so quickly after the kid signs. I believe it was the day right after National Signing Day that the Ohio State coach bolted. So it, that was really just kind of not cool. And so I think in that situation, I would be open to allowing the kid to reopen his recruitment if it happened in such a quick time span. But you know what these colleges would do. They would just pursue the assistant to wait until whatever the deadline is for the kid to be locked into his scholarship. So the system as it is right now favors the coaches and not the players. The the players have to commit to the school until they graduate or are able to leave to the NFL, while the coaches can jump from job to job whenever they want. To me, I, I, I'm torn because what if a coach leaves after a kid's freshman year and becomes a head coach at another school? Then that coach, because he left, could then go back and recruit those kids to come to that school. You know what I mean? It would kind of open it would open the door for the coach to yeah. wink, wink, nod, nod, maybe not outright recruit, but you know that hey, I'm going to take this job, you might want to think of transferring or something like that. And there's no way to police that. And that's where I think this whole situation gets very sticky is I'm all in favor of giving the players more rights, but at the same time, I could really see this opening up a door to a lot stickier situation where coaches could come and prey on their former school's players knowing that they could transfer without penalty. Yeah, it's a really tricky situation to navigate. I think something has to happen. First and foremost, uh, what Roquan Smith did, not signing the National Letter of Intent, that's an option that 
probably all five-star and four-star recruits have. Uh, they have the leverage. Everybody wants them. They don't have to sign that binding contract. They can just commit to the school. And when it's time to show up, they can show up. And then the, it, it gives them a larger window of making a decision. Uh, it's about the three-star recruits and the two-star recruits, the lesser recruited guys that uh, don't have that leverage that have the same worries, causes for concern. If uh, the coach that they're closest to recruits them, makes them these promises that he's going to be there a week after signing that binding contract, he's gone. And you're going to a school across the country where the one guy you were close to isn't going to be there anymore. I think what they could do is they need to change just the, the wording of the national letter of intent. Maybe you can... It, it, maybe it becomes more of a negotiation where you can name a coach that says, if he leaves in a, in my first year, I am eligible to transfer with no penalties without sitting out that year. Uh, that would be a little bit crazy and out there, but at the end, these are 17 year olds and 18 year old kids. And for, for the one adult that they trust to leave is is definitely screwing the player out of getting the best of their education and out of their talents. That being said, there I mean you're obviously free to transfer whenever you want to. You can go to junior college, play for a year, and then come back to the school that you want to go. Also, you're able to if you graduate and you enroll into a graduate program that does not exist uh, at your school, you're able to transfer without penalty, without sitting out a year. So that would be at the least a three year commitment to the first school. And then you'd be able to transfer for your last two years. So, you know, I'm not too upset if a coach leaves after a year after recruiting that guy and he's there for the first year, if he leaves, I I don't think you should be upset. Like you are then settled into your position, you're settled into your school. Most of the time you're not going to be upset for your coach taking a better and bigger contract elsewhere. It's when they flat out bold face lie and say, Oh yeah, I'm going to be coaching you. I'm going to be coaching you all year. And then a day later they're cashing in and moving across the country. That's, that's what they need to combat. And it, it definitely favors the coaches. Everything in, in college football favors the coaches. Uh, they, they just need to, it, it would be great for the kids if they are able to, to write something in where, where it, it holds these coaches more accountable. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that's a bad idea. And I agree with you. I don't think it should be too comprehensive. I think after about one year, you're pretty much settled in. This is the school you picked. If we're truly talking student athletes here, but let's just be realistic, the NCAA has gotten away from that notion a little bit, to say the least. Um, If we're truly talking about student athletes, though, they are picking a school and not a sport, even though I certainly don't believe that they're not just going for sports. A lot of these kids do go just to play sports. I believe Cardell Jones had a famous treat, tweet about that. And so We ain't going to school. <laughs> I didn't come here to play school, I think it was. Something along those lines. <laughs> so let's let's not like kid ourselves here. But it is supposed to be an educational decision. Supposed to be an educational decision. So again, I I'm torn because I don't want a situation where if the coach leaves after a year, he can start preying on his recruits from the other school. And you mentioned the graduate transfer rule. I like that rule because it encourages kids to get their degree early. And say you redshirt your freshman year, 
then you only spend two years playing for that school if you graduate in three years and you still have two years of eligibility at another school. You could conceivably play your way up, develop with one school, and transfer to a bigger school if you developed um, properly and become an attractive seasoned player. I'm surprised more kids don't exploit that option. I think it's because the whole caveat is you have to actually finish your degree. And so, yeah, I mean, that's obviously a lot of work even for a normal student. And I wasn't trying to take a shot at the players there. But these players, they're, they're playing full-time jobs. I mean, their, their practice regimen is about a 40-hour work week. If, I mean, that's being nice. I think sometimes they're more like 50s. I mean, good luck trying to squeeze in extra classes to try to graduate early. They'd have to probably take summer classes do what they can. I mean, I'm not. It is a lot of work being a college athlete, especially a big-time Division One college athlete. And so, I guess we should just transition into another point that we're going to talk about. Do you think athletes should be paid a stipend or an hourly wage for practice time? I I would support something like that. A stipend, I think, is what you should call it. Don't call it a wage, because then you're talking about how much they're worth for what they're doing. And I don't think uh, you want to get into that battle, but if you call it a stipend, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you've heard, you've seen some athletes, you know, Arian Foster famously said that he didn't have enough money to pay for his groceries, which I would combat, you know, the scholarship gets you a, a full meal plan if you're living on campus. So why are you living in an apartment? But anyway, uh, if you get the stipend there, yeah, I, I think so. They're 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 putting in tons of time on top of actually, as cynical as you want to say, having a full, full class load to be a full time student. Uh, I think a stipend is definitely worth it, and it would go a long way in keeping a lot of the, a lot of the players happy, and with with their workload and with school in general. Yeah, sometimes it amazes me how not just athletic full rides quote-unquote but even academic full rides don't cover all the costs like you would think that a full ride is just that full ride your books are paid for everything's paid for but it is surprising how sometimes these full ride scholarships do have some loopholes in them i certainly think the ncaa should shore that up not just for the athletes Obviously, the NCAA has no bearing on the academic scholarships, but I think the schools have a right to the students that they are attracting to make a full-ride scholarship worth a true full-ride. That means no burden on the student. Your education is paid for, books, whatever. All the educational expenses that come with it are paid for. That being said, I want to say that if the NCAA is going to be so strict, and, and it really is, it is very hard for a college athlete to get a part-time job to because they have to worry about eligibility rules, taking illegal compensation, all that stuff. If they're going to be that way and if they're going to make them practice 40 to 50 hours a week, so where are you going to find the time for class, practice, games, and a part-time job? I do think a stipend is worth it because, look, if you're on a full-ride academic scholarship, All you have to do is go to class and study hard. Student-athlete has to go to class, study hard, find time for homework and stuff between practices, which, again, 40 to 50 hours a week, game times. If you're playing college basketball weeknights, two two nights a week, sometimes traveling during the week, football, traveling every week, almost every other weekend or at least six times a a, a year, 
sometimes to sometimes Maryland has to go to Nebraska. It is a tough gig, and it is a heavy workload. And I certainly think that being a student athlete is more than just being a student. I mean, you essentially have a part-time job on top of that. Help the kids out a little bit. Pay them a stipend. We're not asking them to sign million-dollar contracts like the pro sports. That's not what this is about. We're asking to value the time that they're giving the school. And I would I would say that the time commitment on an athletic scholarship is far greater than that of a normal academic scholarship. I'm not saying that a kid who has a full academic ride doesn't have to work hard to maintain a GPA and work hard to keep that scholarship and work hard to do well in school, but that kid is not working 50 hours a week like a student athlete, or most cases. I, I Again, I don't know if sometimes you, you're required to do maybe like a laboratory assistantship or something along those lines. Again, I, I don't know all the intricacies of it, but I'm willing to bet that a student athlete is putting in a lot more work on top of normal classwork than a normal kid on an academic scholarship. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, at, at the end of the day, the, the time commitment of a of a Division One football player is is huge, and just the sheer time that they have to give up just to play football on top of uh, whatever else they other commitments they have to do and fulfill it, it doesn't I don't think it can, can compares to anybody else um, not comparing the the levels of work or the quality of work or anything else but just the amount of time that gets put in uh, they don't have time to do much anything else so I think a stipend would go a long way in helping helping appease them and helping them helping uh, assuring that they don't step out of line and do something bad to get money. And I guess that'll lead into another question. Um, should athletes be allowed to profit off their image, be it through autographs or public appearances? This is another one I'm torn on. I think generally speaking, yes. I think Johnny Manziel should have been allowed to sign as many autographs as he wanted and get paid for it at the same time. I certainly could see situations where, okay, Johnny Manziel isn't getting paid by the school to sign this autograph, but he's getting paid by a super booster or something like that. It's like it's like kind of like with the election with the super PACs. You're allowed to donate to this campaign fund that's not endorsed by Jeb Bush, but pretty much stands for everything he stands for, and they just don't talk about it or something like that. The long story short, the school, through their boosters, could pay their athletes a lot of money with these quote-unquote autograph signing things. So I certainly could understand where opening that door is essentially saying, hey, we're going to pay these kids a lot of money. But I also look at Johnny Manziel now. Johnny Manziel, two years ago, three years ago, was a megastar. Still is a big star. Still probably going to get paid a lot of money. And if he manages the wealth wisely... Should be fine. I'm not crying for him. But there is no doubt that he was worth more when he was a freshman winning that Heisman than he is right now. Like if you're assessing Johnny Manziel's worth, his stock has gone down. And certainly if you were allowed to sign an endorsement deal that year or sign autographs that year, he'd get a lot more money than he would right now, at least in my opinion. So Again, I'm torn on this because I could see where it opens the door for 
schools doing really shady things that they already do. But I kind of I think these guys should be allowed to profit on their stardom because the analogy I always make is, say the Goo Goo Dolls, because I just talked about them earlier. This is your now. You always use the Goo Goo Dolls. Well, no, analogy? I just talked about them earlier. But say they went to the <laughs> Ohio State University and studied music in the Department of Music in 1998 and then they wrote the song iris which was a huge hit that catapult them into superstardom they could go out tour the world make a bazillion dollars and guess what they wouldn't be kicked out of the school of music for making a bazillion dollars they could still study there why is it every other kid on campus can strike it huge as a superstar and still come back and play music on that campus and do what they do on that campus except athletes. Why? Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's 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 silly when you put it like that way, but I do understand why it's put in place because uh, like you said boosters can go hog wild while the player can go hog wild. Um I'm torn about it too cuz I don't have a good clean answer. I think the NCAA needs to be more hands-on with enabling the players and maybe it all all public appearances and autographs have to be gone through a third ncaa party that's established by the ncaa to to put on these signing sessions it can be in very closed windows of the season so that they can monitor it very easily anything that's dated without that is still punishable i i, I agree with you they should be able to profit off of a mega sophomore season when they're stuck there for another year, they should definitely be able to profit off of that because you never know what's going to happen in the future. So I think, I think instead of vilifying it, which is what the NCAA has done for years now, they need to start to embrace it and take it under their wing so that it can be policed more efficiently and you can reward these players. Yeah. And speaking of that, I, this wasn't on our list, but Health insurance reform, too. I mean, say you have a mega sophomore season, you blow out your ACL and you're done. I mean, medical bills are no joke. And you you see a lot of cases where sometimes athletes just find themselves out of luck as far as it comes to medical insurance. And I know you can take an insurance policy out on your draft stock, but not every athlete can. There are a lot of athletes who are big-time college players that are only grayed out to a fourth-round pick. You're not getting a big insurance policy for that. And so it's a big risk playing football at any level. And at the college level, you've got so much on the line with your health and you're giving so much of your body potentially to the school. Um, You would like to see or think that the school would still remain loyal. There are stories, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but there are stories out there of players who just mess up their careers playing football and struggle to get health insurance. Yeah, definitely. That's just something that should have been done years ago and they need to get with it uh kind of continuing that you know the four the full four-year scholarship also needs to be a universal thing at this point yeah certainly i I think that full four years of course i mean i i don't know why they would cut a kid if he blew out his acl his sophomore year and retract his scholarship or something like that i just feel like that's just being disloyal to the kid yeah, it's being disloyal and being a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, but, you know, I guess kind of moving on, um, one of my biggest problems with college football is 
you see it all the time. A small or mid-tier school has a huge season, very successful season, and you know that coach is being poached. And he gets poached. And then he can't coach the bowl game. And then that school that had a loser season gets a recruiting advantage over the small school that had a big advantage. So should the NCAA institute a hiring freeze until after the BCS national, oh, excuse me, the national championship game. It's no longer the BCS game anymore. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that the, the theme that we're going through is the NCAA is still really lax in what they allow and disallow. They need to, to pull it all together. They need to establish windows and freezes and, and pull it all together. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think that coaches shouldn't be hired until all the games have been played in the season. And I know the the NFL does the same thing in the playoffs. Uh, you know, they, they allow some of their coaches to interview during playoffs and all that. But um, like I said, this is college football. They're younger, younger kids are, are, are the ones being affected uh, a good, a great season for a team that, will probably never have that season again is going to end on a bitter note because their coach isn't going to be there to coach them in the big game that he got them to. And I think that's a shame and that's really sad. And that, uh, that punishes the small successful school and rewards the big money, big name schools. And I don't think that's fair at all. I think the only time failure should be rewarded is if you're in a draft situation. I understand why the worst teams would get the first pick in that. Failure should never have an advantage over a successful school. It is utterly ridiculous that a school like Michigan, and I'm not just picking on Michigan because I'm an Ohio State fan, but Michigan has not been very good the last five or six years since about 2008. Michigan should not be allowed to poach another team's coach until that coach is done coaching, period. If it affects Michigan's recruiting, win more games next year and don't put yourself in that position. If you go 5-7 and seven ever, you should never have a recruiting advantage. I don't care about your recruiting advantage. You don't deserve one. If your coach isn't in place until January 16, well, next year, win more games and don't put yourself in that situation. If you have to fire a coach, you should wait until everyone else is done. The 10-2 and Southern Miss team or Houston or teams like that, West Virginia, I don't think they're really mid-tier anymore. They've kind of risen up and they're pretty consistent. But the point is, those schools, Louisville, who was a mid-tier school, got poached a couple times. The point is, those schools should not have to suffer for having a good season when your loser big school lost a bunch of games. No, you get a recruiting disadvantage. You wait until everyone's done, and then you can start hiring your coach. But I agree. I think like in the NFL playoffs, they have a hiring freeze. They certainly can still interview. Maybe there's an interview period. I think there's like two interview periods during the playoffs, one during the wild card week and yeah. one during the divisional week. Maybe you do that, have an interview period, because you don't want to punish the coach either. You don't want schools moving on from a hot candidate. But after they cannot hire their candidate. They, colleges cannot hire until the national title game is done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree. All right, so speaking of things happening after the national title game. Nick Saban talked about his kids receiving a draft grade and that the decision to declare for the draft was quickly after the national title game and it may have distracted them. Now, it sounds a lot like sour grapes, and it certainly does, 
But I kind of think he has a little bit of a point. These kids only have about two or three days to make one of the biggest decisions of their life to go pro early. I mean, that's a monumental decision, leaving a year on the t- of school on the table to go pro and roll the dice and hope you get drafted high enough. Do you think the NFL, now this would be kind of the NCAA working with the NFL here, should move back its deadline by a couple weeks so that way all these head coaches can sit down one-on-one, go over, and players can really get evaluated instead of having to cram it in while they're trying to prepare for a playoff game? Yeah, I, I think he. I think he was onto something. I think what he was, what he thought he was saying, was a little wrong because I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, when Alabama had nine players drafted in 2013, they looked pretty good in the title game. So I don't, I don't know if like it, it was just this batch of kids or or whatnot. But yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think. I think there should be more collaboration between NCAA and, and the NFL, especially when we're talking about the draft. Um, yeah, it would it would benefit coaches, it would benefit teams probably to to maybe talk some sense into a kid who thinks he's a, a higher pick, even though they get those those grades handed down. They they probably think they're beating those odds, um, and and then you can probably also come to a mutual understanding with a kid who really needs to go out and and get drafted. Um, who is it? The 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 O lineman from Clemson who just got taken in the supplemental draft. I mean, he he wanted to come back, but then he realized he needed to support his family and get a paycheck. Uh, I think if you had more time to have that conversation, uh, he would have been able to enter the draft and probably make more money instantly, right right off the bat. So yeah, I think it would it would benefit. Uh, first and foremost, it would benefit the players the most. And I think most teams and coaches would, would benefit from it too. Yeah. Talking about Nick Saban, I think the message was sound. I think he had a good point. The problem is the timing. He's saying this after he just lost to a team that a lot of people underestimated. Had he said this after he won him one of his three national titles, I don't think anyone would have had a problem with it. And I think everyone, like you said, kind of pointed at him and said, hey, where was this when you were winning championships and still sending a ton of players to the NFL? Where was this then? And so I think the timing was poor, but I think the message is dead on. I think these kids need, I mean, two days to make that big of a decision? I mean, you have to think about all that stuff while you're preparing for a bowl game or a playoff run? That's just too much, man. Like, come on, give the kid a couple weeks, get, push it back to the end of January. What's it going to hurt anyone? I mean, the combine's not till like, the end of February anyway. Well, what's it going to hurt anyone if you push the deadline back a few weeks, give these kids time to really get evaluated, really take a, a, a couple days off of football, unwind, digest the season, process things, and not make a quick decision right after a, a football season because a lot of times you're still on an emotional high or low coming off of your, your football season. Give these kids time to unwind, process all the information, talk to their coaches, talk to independent evaluators, and make a decision that's best for them. I just think having such a quick turnaround is just ridiculous. Yeah, it, it is. It, it, it puts an unnecessary pressure on on the kids to, in, into making sometimes not sound decisions. So uh, I think that's my that seems to be my theme through this podcast is I'm, I think the players are getting a little ex- exploited. I think the players have a real raw deal in the NCAA. And I know, yes, they're getting a free education, and we're not saying that that's not important. But when you look at all they do, 
all the hours they work. Unpaid hours, by the way. Because, again, as I said before, a kid on an educational scholarship is not required, or in most cases, sometimes not required to even have a job. Uh, sometimes, again, there are graduate assistantships, stuff like that, but I doubt that they're putting in the kind of work that a Division One athlete is. And But it's not just that. It's a lot of travel, a lot of wear and tear on your body. You know, football is a violent sport, but you get hurt playing any sport, and that messes up the rest of your life. They're putting their bodies on the line for their school. And if you're playing big-time football or basketball, guess what? You're increasing the profile of your school a lot more than the kids on the educational scholarship. And again, I'm not trying to demean educational scholarships. But these athletes, I mean, there are so many people who go to Ohio State because they grew up Ohio State fans. Well, you owe all that to your athletes. Your athletes put that brand on the map. And it's not just Ohio State. It's all the big brands. It's all Michigan, Alabama, Georgia, USC, all of them, Oklahoma. You go on and on and on. You know, a lot of times people only hear the school because of the football team or the basketball team. And I think that there needs to be a more favorable situation for the athletes. Again, I'm not saying that schools should sign them the four-year, $20 million contracts and start going pro on us. We're just trying to argue a little bit for athletes' rights. Yeah, yeah. Just start giving them something, and then we'll see where it goes. But as it stands right now, they're being completely exploited. And they are, I'm the, the last person to say that uh, uh, NCAA football player is more valuable than the kid on a full ride academic scholarship, but uh, they are without a doubt more profitable. A, their scholarship is more profitable as the person than the kid on the academic scholarship. And that's just a fact, just the amount of money that they're able to bring in and, and name brand and, and success, like you were saying. So, right. Yeah. Throw them a bone, man. Throw them a bone. Right. And, and I really don't want our listeners to get confused. We are not demeaning academic scholarships in any way with this, but when you look at the bottom line, you can't tell me that a kid on a full-ride academically is enhancing the brand of the college more so than the student-athlete currently. Now, that medical student may go on to be a big-time booster of the school, but again, we're not, again, we're not demeaning academic scholarships, and we're not certainly not advocating for these kids to sign pro-level contracts we just want a little more rights. I think when you dig deeper into the issue, you'd be surprised that, you know, how little the average college athlete makes. I think the extreme situations of the big time NCAA violations aren't as big as they are proliferated to be. But one last point before we move on: scheduling. One issue that I am pretty passionate about. Do you think FBS schools should be allowed to schedule FCS schools? I think they should only be allowed to play FCS school in week one. And that is it. If they want a tune-up game, that's fine because uh, it's really unfair the way it's, – it's really hard with how the schedules work, with what conference you're in, how your schedule is built up. The If you're going for a national championship, you have at the most one loss to work with. And to go straight into a tough schedule – right off the bat, not knowing who your quarterback is, not, you know, having one month's worth of practice with the entire team, with all the freshmen there. Uh, it, it's hard. So I, I think only in week one can a team schedule FCS school. I know you're a little bit more, more extreme on it, but I think 
a tune-up game is fine and paying that FCS school a huge chunk of money to get their butts kicked uh, should weigh, weigh heavy on the athletic director, but I could see why they would do it. Uh, but yeah, o- only in week one. Well, let's look at Ohio State's schedule. Now, Ohio State is playing Virginia Tech on the road, which Virginia Tech isn't what it was. Still, I'd say that's a pretty tough opening game. They got the Hawaii Rainbow Warriors, the Northern Illinois Huskies, and the Western Michigan Broncos. And I'm sorry, with all due respect to those schools, but I don't think they're that much better than an FCS school. You flip one of them the week one, you can't tell me one of those teams isn't a tune-up game. There are plenty of cupcakes in FBS if an FBS team wants to have an easy game. Don't schedule down. I, I know... It is profitable for the FCS schools because they do get paid money, and so we got to think about them too. And those kids do get to play on the big stage, so it is a kind of a, you know, a, a duality there. But well, I, what if you know? I don't think as many FBS FBS cupcake schools are willing to go to Columbus Week One than at FCS school, even I, if you know I, the money's on the line. I just I, named three of them. They're all going to Columbus Week Two, Three, and Four. And they're all probably going to lose by 100 points. There, there's yeah, a lot well, of money on the line for those schools, too. They get paid some big coin. Yeah, I, I, that's Ohio State and their big pocket. You know, Alabama is the same way. They have a, they have three really easy teams. Uh, I can't name them off the top of my head, but after they play Wisconsin, it's it's not all, not all that inspiring. But I, I just think other, there are other schools that – probably have struggles bringing in an FBS school. And so they, they, they talk to the FCS school that's right down the street and they're able to get a tune-up game. I, I think we need to look a little bit outside the, the huge powers at the top of the right. NCAA and think about some of those other schools. Okay, I will rephrase because that's a very good point. I think the Power 5 conferences should not be allowed to schedule FCS schools, but the bottom, the, the little five, the Sun Belt, the MAC, they can be allowed to. I have no problem with them doing it. But I think well, I, th- I think if you schedule two FCS schools oh, you in can't. the season, you should. Okay. Yeah, you can't. I, I don't. I, you you can only count one FCS game for bowl eligibility. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was gonna say like it, I think that there should be if you schedule it anywhere outside of week one, it, it sh- you should be disqualified for the playoff. Like you're you're just not you're not eligible. I I think they should put something into that effect. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm all for that. I don't want FCS anywhere. But, hey, some interesting stats, though. Last time USC played an FCS opponent was 1952. The last time Notre Dame played an FCS opponent, 1941, Carnegie Mellon. So props to them. And UCLA, last time they played an FCS opponent, 1954. So props to those schools for actually stepping up and not scheduling FCS every year. Some surprising names on this list. Um, in 2014, Tulsa and Florida Atlantic did not play an FCS opponent. I found that a little surprising. Rice has not played an FCS opponent since 2007. Not exactly a powerhouse. So these schools can do it. And I, I don't have a problem with some teams on the lower tier. Because let's just be real. FBS is a two-tier system now. There's the Power Five and the Little Five. And we all know what we're talking about. The SEC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and ACC. Those are the Power Five leagues. And the other three leagues are on a level below them. And if we're going to talk big picture, it wouldn't surprise me if one day those Power Five leagues are in a NCAA of their own. 
and they leave those other guys behind because I think that there is a big divide between what is a super big school in football and a big time non-power five school. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think they should have a preseason game, man. They, there should be some kind of exhibition game. I think they do a scrimmage. I think they scrimmage. Well, maybe it's a it's an inner squad scrimmage, but I wouldn't mind that. Maybe do like a mid August scrimmage or something like that. One yeah, last stat, I, though: only twenty three of one hundred twenty eight FBS teams did not play an FCS opponent in two thousand fourteen, and I believe no members of the ACC or SEC. Each one of them scheduled at least one FCS opponent. So kind of interesting there. Yeah. All righty. We covered a ton of ground with the NCAA there. But there's other football to talk about in the NFL. Season hasn't started yet, and it feels like there's a ton of drama on the field. Not even talking about (laughs) that topic we're not talking about. But in case you hadn't heard, a boxing match broke out in the Jets locker room. And not to make light of this very unfortunate situation for Geno Smith, but he got sucker punched, broken jaw, out six to ten weeks. Now, I believe that counts August, so we're looking at, what, a week two return at the earliest between week two and three? But by then, Ryan Fitzpatrick or Bryce Petty could have played their way into the starting role. This is a devastating blow for Geno Smith. Yeah, uh, starting off just with him, it's really unfortunate and sad because he, by all accounts, was having a good camp and entering week three or year three as a quarterback that's uh that's usually the money year the time when you after this year you're they're gonna make a decision on whether he's their quarterback or not this was his last chance to prove it and this is not a good way to start the season uh it's a it's a classic jets thing to happen uh you know through the past few years just ridiculous things uh already with sheldon richardson not playing it does not look good for for them their team uh on the offensive side i mean i would if i in a vacuum for one season in 2015 i would probably i would take ryan fitzpatrick over geno smith so in terms of success on the field it actually might work out for them but for geno smith uh it's it's not good well, I think he was going to be their week one starter because, as you said, year three is the money year. You know what you got in Ryan Fitzpatrick, but you got to see if Geno Smith has it. So I would have been surprised if he didn't start or if he didn't win the starting job. That would have been a terrible sign. But, yeah, it's it's awful. I mean, to go into a must-show-me year and have this happen to you, it's just terrible. And the guy, I.K. in them. I didn't want to say his name because I can't pronounce his name, but we'll just say IK. Guess who he got claimed by after the Jets cut him? Right, yeah, the guy that drafted him, Rex Ryan. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. This is just this is just too crazy of a story right now. You got Rex Ryan yeah. claiming the guy who sucker punched Geno Smith. I don't know, man. Rex Ryan fired a lot of collusion charges against the Patriots during his tenure with the Jets. If I'm the Jets, I might want to take a look at that a little closer. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> you think there's a hit put on on Geno I, by Rex? I Is don't. That I, no, I'm not insinuating that at all. I was just making a joke. I don't <laughs> think he did that. Yeah, I I do think like it for a for it to happen, even though they say it was a kind of out of nowhere punch. Uh, there was probably some point in their relationship where Geno Smith 
as the potential leader and starting quarterback of this team should have nipped this in the bud and regained that locker room and regained that player into the locker room. It's the second time this offseason we've seen a public fight with a starting quarterback. The other one with Cam Newton on the field wasn't as violent, but uh, you don't really see that happen with a start with the starting quarterback. And I hold Cam Newton in a little bit higher regard uh, talent wise than Geno Smith and leadership wise. He's entering year five. So uh, it's interesting that you have uh, two quarterbacks showing a little lack of restraint on, on the practice field and in the locker room. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's not blow the, well, the Geno Smith, I mean, they usually don't result in the broken jaw, but practice fights aren't uncommon in the NFL. I'm not going to just, you know, it's uncommon for the quarterback though. You're certainly uncommon for the quarterback, but I don't know. One incident I don't think is going to define you as a leader. It's certainly not something you should be proud of when you're fighting with your own teammates. But hey, you're right. I mean, you never, you don't want to get into it in practice with your own teammates. That's that's usually not a good sign. And for Geno Smith, it's it's a really bad sign. I mean, he's out for, you know, he could be out for ten weeks. I mean, counting August, that's six games. So if you if you knock the time off in August. But anyway, more NFL news. Kevin White, the very promising young Chicago receiver rookie, has an injury on his shin. And he might even miss the entire season. I mean, he's certainly going to miss significant time. There's reports saying he could be facing a year-long injury. Add that to Dante Fowler Jr., who got hurt in day one of training camp in Jacksonville. And man, this rookie class is dropping like flies already. Yeah, that's the number seven pick in Kevin White and the number three pick in Dante Fowler. Uh, Yeah, it's really shocking. Um, Both of them were obviously interesting prospects that people wanted to see on the field. I think Kevin White, everyone was excited to see because he was basically replacing Brandon Marshall in the big uh, twin tower that can go next to Alshon Jeffrey. And people were expecting big things from him with that high-powered uh, down the field offense so it, it's sad he's at least out for until week eight I believe and uh, for him to come back on a shin injury rookie season for him to really do anything to salvage anything would be surprising I think so yeah it's that's it's that's a sad th- sad piece of news hopefully uh, he is able to recover and get back to form quickly Chicago does have one nice head coach in John Fox. I I don't think he's the greatest coach in the world, but he's certainly one of the more underrated coaches out there. I mean, he led two teams to Super Bowl, led Jake DeLone to a Super Bowl, and he led the Denver Broncos to a division title with your boy Tim Tebow at quarterback. So John Fox certainly can adapt, and I think they have a good guy leading that team over there. It's all going to come down to Jay Cutler. I mean, can Jay Cutler finally just kind of step up and, you know, kind of do something? And that offensive line, let's not excuse that. I mean, he's gotten hit a lot as well. But certainly not good for Kevin Roy and Chicago. But your boy Tim Tebow had a very eventful preseason. I didn't get to watch a lot of the preseason, but I'm pretty sure he scored a touchdown. Tebow time's back, baby. He ran one in, yeah. (laughs) You think he'll be the starter on Philadelphia? Oh, no, absolutely not. Um I, I didn't I wasn't able to watch it, but I, I was checking some stats and by all accounts Mark Matt Barkley looked really well. Uh Mark Sanchez had a touchdown as well. So uh they have a wealth of options at quarterback, none of who I would want. You didn't but, mention Sam Bradford, <laughs> man. He didn't play. 
Oh, well, that's why you didn't mention it. But like I said, I haven't yeah. watched any preseason. <laughs> I've been on the road all week, so I normally don't watch a lot of preseason. I, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't take too much too much for granted. Um, obviously, you don't want to look awful in the preseason, <laughs> but if you look good, there's I don't know what to really take from it. You know, Jameis Winston and Mariota both had their debuts. Uh, they kind of had mixed results. Uh, Mariota was a little more scattered than than Winston with a fumble return for a touchdown and then a uh, interception as well. So mixed results, but uh, you know it's week one of the preseason. Nothing nothing too big to take away from on the field. But Tebow's back, and that makes me happy. I, I do like though. I mean, I didn't like Tim Tebow in college because I generally just don't like Florida. Florida just ripped Ohio State. In oh yeah, football and basketball that year, so it, it was not a good time for me cheering for Florida people. But in the NFL, I feel bad for the guy because here's a guy who, by all accounts, is a really good guy. He's very religious. He seems like he is the kind of guy you want representing your team. And nobody, wants I don't that. understand why everyone hates him so much. I really don't. I mean, he he seems like a really good, genuine guy. I mean, he's been practicing. He's, it's hard to keep up if it's an act, the religious act, for this long. I tr- I believe that he is very religious. I don't understand why people hate him so much. I mean, I certainly understand why Ohio State fans would cheer against him in Florida because Florida kind of ripped their hearts out in the national title game. But, I mean, there's so much hate towards him, man. I just think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I, I did not like him as a college football player either. I, I don't like Florida. I don't, I did not like him in, in college though. He was the man. He was by all accounts dominant and he was amazing in the NFL. He's the true underdog and there's not a better person in the NFL throw the religion out just as a, as a good person who interviews well, who is nice, who is, a, does charitable work without without using his his money as the as as the tool of charitable work uh, he's he's one of the best dudes out there and for him to be so so regarded as not a talented quarterback but for him to keep trying and keep getting shots and every time making the most of his shots except for the the new york thing which uh, i think he was just not given opportunities but he won a playoff game. I know he, <laughs> he beat the Steelers play- <laughs> in the playoffs. He he helped so, yeah. lead that team to the postseason. Now, now, granted, they had a lot of talent, but come on, man, he was a quarterback for a playoff team. He helped lead them there. Yeah, I I I, I like that. I I don't like the Tebow mania, but I like Tim Tebow in the NFL. Hey, you remember that Tim Tebow New York Jets action figure you gave me? It's hanging on my shelf yeah. right behind me. <laughs> right behind me. <laughs> I was really hoping to get a tim tebow patriots jersey for you but they, i don't think they printed any <laughs> no they didn't i don't think they he wasn't there long enough you probably could custom yeah. it if you really wanted to but yeah i, I, mean, I don't I, i'm just kidding man i think he only played like <laughs> one series with the jets in like week 17 though I, I mean to say he didn't get a chance is a gross understatement i don't think he played like hardly at all with the jets i think he played i think they put him in for a play probably for eight games he he they would put him in let him run the ball straight up the middle and then you wouldn't see him again for another game clearly the uh use of his versatility was uh off the charts in new york but 
Anyway, the PGA Tour just wrapped up, and Jason Day is the winner at minus 20. Jordan Spieth has got to feel pretty bad. He shot minus 17, and then he shot a minus 14 in the British Open. How did he not complete the Grand Slam with scores like that? You can't say Spieth lost it for lack of trying, man. No, definitely not. But Jason Day uh, led wire to wire, so he he is certainly deserving. And uh, you know, Spieth number two number twos in, in the majors isn't bad. I think he's going to be the 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 number one ranked player in golf now. So he's had an amazing ascendant year in golf, and there's nothing to be ashamed of with with his victories and then with his two second place finishes. So. Uh, congrats to Day, and con- I mean, Spieth, congrats to him, too. Yeah, you got to think Jordan Spieth's going to be around for a while. I just kind of made one of the cardinal sins in sports. I hate it when you focus more on the guy who didn't win than the guy who win- won. So big ups to Jason Day shooting a minus 20, pulling in a major. Uh, definitely impressive. But, man, man, it's Jordan Spieth. It's getting me in the golf again, man. I just want to see this guy play. I want it to be the Masters next year already, see if he can put in another major. He's what four straight top 10 top two finishes in majors and he's got two titles already so definitely a bright future for him yeah yeah absolutely all righty well hopefully it's another bright future for this podcast but that largely depends on you please subscribe via itunes come back to fenleyroadsports.com follow us on twitter at fenleyrdsports and of course follow us on instagram fenleyroadsports We'll be back next week with some more football. College football's right around the corner. You notice the theme. We're going to be breaking down some more football. NFL's not too far behind. So if you're ready for some football and you love football, come on back next week. We'll certainly be talking our fair share of it over the next couple weeks here as football season gets in the full swing. But until then, take care, guys, and thank you for listening. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Take it easy, Bob.